guys look comfortable, quiet. Let me just get myself sorted here. It's been a while. Well, let me just say, first of all, that was my wife, if, for those of you who don't know. So I also was gone for a while. We were together. And it's uh, really, really good to be back. That's my son back there. He's also excited to be back. We really missed you guys. We went to a few different churches while we were in the States, and it's always interesting to see a different kind of style and a different way of doing church. And although cool and interesting and unique, we always really missed here. We missed Church at Five. We missed you guys. And so it's really good to be back. I'm looking around, and some of you are like, I don't even know who this guy is. I just started coming here, so what's he talking about? Well, I'm Brandon, and I'm the pastor for this service, for Church at Five, the English service, and we were away in Texas for the last four weeks, but we're back, and we're ready to get to be diving into what God wants to do, and I'm excited especially to be diving into this new series. We're going to be looking at Jonah. I've always found it a very interesting and fascinating book. Even though it's very short, it has a lot to offer, and it's something that God actually put on my heart before I left, uh, tried to plan ahead a little bit. I knew that it wouldn't be very, a good idea to do a lot of planning on vacation. That tends to always backfire if you've ever tried it. And uh, so it was something that God actually put on my heart before I left, and uh, it's something that I believe that God really wants to use. He wants to use this small book that we're going to be looking at for the next four weeks. It's only four chapters if you haven't read it yet, and uh, we're going to do one chapter a week. And I believe that God wants to tell us some things through this book, that he wants to encourage us and to challenge us and to prepare us for some things through this, the examples of Jonah in the text. And to tell you a little bit about it, it's a, a fascinating book, it's an amazing story, and it, again, touches on a lot of different issues and some really important ones that we all still, in one way or another, deal with today, which I hope we'll touch on in one way or another, through what we're going to be looking at today. It's, of course, most famous, those of you who know the Bible or grew up in any kind of Sunday school or any kind of children's church, you will have heard some form of the tale of Jonah, most famously known for the moment when he uh, got swallowed by a whale. Did you need to do something? Yeah, I needed something. Sorry. You looked at, there was a look, I was worried. I thought I did something wrong. It's like, I, I have been gone a while, maybe I'm forgetting something. No, it's a, it's a good story. It's an, a famous for, of course, the being swallowed by a whale. We're going to be looking at that next week where we see Jonah actually give a prayer from the belly of a whale. And, uh, but the more I study this book, and especially it's a book that I studied a while back, a few years ago, and kind of revisiting it, it's been really interesting. It's so amazing how much depth is actually in this book and how well put together it is. It's a very well-constructed constructed book. Um, and in this series, for the next four weeks, we're going to have a few goals that we're going to have uh, that we'll take into mind or take in mind as, as we look at each of our sermons we're going to be doing. And that the first thing is we want to look at the relationship between Jonah and God. It's a very interesting dynamic, as we'll see as we go through the different chapters. But I think there's a lot of things that we can learn from in their example that we can adapt 
and apply to our lives today. The second thing we want to be doing is we want to look at the book itself, the way it was written, a lot of the kind of literary traits that it presents, and what we can learn from them. What, are the, what the author is trying to say to us sometimes in some subtext throughout the, throughout the book. And finally, we want to remember Jesus Christ. This is a book that points to him, as most of the Bible does. And even Jesus uh, refers to this story as a, an example of his own sacrifice and his death and burial and resurrection. And so it's something that we also want to take into account as we go through the text. So to begin, let's just do a little bit of a quick background on uh, the book of Jonah itself. We're going to do this a little bit each week, so just a few really brief things. One, the author is unknown. Uh, there's not even any very good guesses about who it might be. Uh, so we're not sure who wrote it, although it is very well written, well put together. And uh, as far as the time period, we can only kind of guess probably about 770 B.C. We know that because uh, Jonah is also mentioned in Second Kings as he prophesied uh, for one of the kings of Israel. Something else we'll look at later on in the series. And that would have been about that time. And the most prominent category or writing style of this book, which is maybe what draws me to it the most, is satire. It's written in a type of satire. In fact, the whole book, if you laid it out, it kind of mirrors itself over and over again in this kind of satire where everything seems to be flipped upside down. It's a type of irony. What I mean by that, that everything is flipped upside down, is that we see right here at the beginning, in chapter 1, a lot of irony in that a prophet of God, somebody who's called and, and given a mission and a destiny by God himself, is running away from God. He's boarding a ship and trying to get as far away from God and God's plan for his life as he can. And all along the way, we see the, or the irony of this is that on the other side, the pagans, those who had nothing to do with God, didn't believe him at all, they're the ones that are seeking to preserve life, seeking to show mercy. They're the ones that eventually lead to a repentant heart. They're the ones making oaths to God and calling to God. So it seems like everything is kind of flipped upside down, whereas most of the books of the prophet, the prophet is the one that's trying to lead the people to God, and here it seems to be the other way around. And the author kind of does this on purpose in the way that he puts the narrative together. So the main theme of the book, though, is a very important one for us to remember today, and that is that God's compassion, God's love, is boundless. It's boundless. It wasn't just for Jonah. It wasn't just for the Israelites. It extended far beyond that. It extended to the sailors who didn't know anything about God. It extended to, later we'll see, to the city of Nineveh. God's compassion can and will reach as far as he wants it to, to anyone whom he wishes to reach with his love. And this is the very fact that Jonah takes issue with. This is what he's struggling with, as we'll see. And maybe why he's really trying to run from what God's calling him to do, because Jonah struggles to see God's love extended to those that he believes don't deserve it. To those that he believes don't deserve God's love, but punishment. And that's going to be Jonah's biggest issue with what God is calling him to do. So let's dive in. I want to just kind of set the premise for this story 
and something that I believe will apply to our lives today. In verse 1, it starts off, the word of the Lord came to Jonah. And it doesn't just come to Jonah, he's given a very specific word to go to Nineveh and to preach of its destruction, its uh, destruction that they may repent. So God calls him by name, Jonah, go to Nineveh. He's given a specific task. God is appointing to him a task for him to accomplish. Now, if you're like me, there have been many times in my life where I would have been jealous for that. I would have been jealous for that to know so clearly what God is telling me to do, to know so undoubtedly what, God, what God's purpose, what God's mission was for me. For all his faults and the silliness of trying to run from God, he has a purpose. He has a destiny that God's given him. As Christians, we're driven with a longing to serve and to follow after God, to follow God's will for our life. It's something that's put down in our hearts as soon as we become Christian, as soon as we come to a knowledge of the truth. God, through the Holy Spirit, puts this desire to follow after Him in our hearts. And I believe that we're all given a purpose. Every one of us has a purpose, a calling, something that we're destined or called to accomplish in our lives with the person that we are the problem is we often struggle to know what that is we struggle to hear it clearly we struggle to know exactly what it is that God is calling us to do what is it Lord that I'm called to do what is my mission what is your vision for my life what is my purpose we've probably at one point or another had some kind of prayer like that what am I supposed to do God What am I meant to do? And here's Jonah, where there's no misunderstanding, no misinterpretation. He knows what God wants him to do. That's not the question. There's no doubt. There's no uncertainty. And his response is to run away. Not even a reply to God. Doesn't even try to reason with him. He just takes off running. Doesn't try to explain why he doesn't want to go or why he doesn't want to do that. Doesn't, no attempt because it's so clear. It's so clear what God is calling him to do. And so he runs. Jonah went down to Joppa and then headed to Tarshish. Now, it's not exactly sure where that was, but it was definitely somewhere uh, on the other side of the Mediterranean and God was calling him inland uh, towards the, so kind of north, northeast, northwest, sorry, northeast. I had to think about that for a moment. Still a little jet lagged. That's going to be my excuse if I mess, do any mistakes today. So it was definitely, at any rate, the exact opposite direction. And I believe at that time, Jonah was trying to get as far away as he possibly could. There was, there was no plane, so A boat going across the sea was about as far as he could get. He was pretty serious about wanting to get as far away as he could. Now, most of us might be thinking, uh, hello, McFly. That was a deep reference. You guys are too young. Hello, Jonah. I'm God. I know what you're doing. I know where you are. I see you. Do you really think you can get away from me? I see your escape plan. 
Now, I don't believe that Jonah really thought he could run away from God, that he could get far enough that God couldn't see him, that he could go fast enough that God would kind of be like, wait, where'd he go? He was just here a minute ago. And we know this because what Jonah says to the sailors, right? He says, I am a Hebrew and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. So, hello, there's nowhere to go that's not sea or dry land on earth. So why did Jonah run? What's, what's his plan here? If he knew who God is, if he knew what God was capable of, that God could see him, that God was all-knowing, that God was the God of creation, why would he even try to run? Why would he abandon God's purpose for his life? Well, Jonah tells us the answer to this all the way at the end, in chapter 4, verse 2. And this is after the fish, this is after the people repent, at the very, very end, and he kind of goes back to how he was feeling before he even left. He says, and he prayed to the Lord, and this is not a prayer you want to emulate. Isn't this what I said, Lord? When I was still at home, that is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. That's what I was trying to prevent from happening. And he's talking about the repentance of the people of Nineveh. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Oh, what a horrible God that is. What a weird thing to pray. And right after that, in the next verse, he basically says, so just kill me, I'm done. I'd rather die than have to see them to see them experience your love, to see them experience your compassion. He knew what God's plan was from the moment he was called. God's plan was clear to him. God wanted to save the people of Nineveh. God wanted to show his love and his compassion and his grace on them. Jonah, he wanted to be one of those prophets that's like fire and brimstone. So he was like, he, I think he, he knew he was called to be a prophet. He, he prophesied uh, also in Israel for the king. But he wanted to be the kind of prophet that's had the bad news. In fact, in Israel, he prophesied for, prophesied for Jeroboam, who was the second, who was an evil king. And his prophecy from God was, God's going to bless you. Things are going to go well for you. God's going to continue to grow the land of Israel. This was a very good time for Israel uh, during the time of Jonah. And that king continued to do evil. He never repented. And so I think Jonah might have had this, I've seen this before, God. You're compassionate, you're loving, but it doesn't, they don't change. Nothing happens. Better to just kill them all. Just destroy them. And I think this is especially true of Nineveh. Nineveh was in the heart of the Assyrian Empire. And we'll look more at that a bit, but just to kind of give you a brief idea, the nation of the Assyrian nation was notoriously wicked, especially in their acts of war. They were incredibly cruel. They had all kinds of forms of unusual torture and death. They're the inventors of impaling, which I'm not going to describe, but just horrible ways of killing people. And they had done the just horrendous acts. And Jonah didn't think that they deserved to be 
forgiven. And in our human minds, if we looked at some of the things that they had done, we might side with Jonah. Yeah, it doesn't make sense, God. That's not fair. Why would you save them? And, and what about these people over here? And we can go back and forth and try to weigh out what's right or wrong. But the real danger of this is not whether the people deserve it or not. That's not the real thing that's happening in, in the heart of Jonah and in our hearts if we were to think this way. The bigger issue is that Jonah feels justified to tell God what is right and what is wrong. To tell God who he's allowed to show compassion on. To tell God who he's allowed to love and who he's supposed to punish. And that is not for us or for Jonah, for any human to make that decision. That is in God's hands. He believes this so much that he's attempting to stall God. Like God's will is going to like not be done because if Jonah can't do it, nobody can do it. I think that's what his intention was. And I want to share something interesting I found in the wording of this passage. As I said, there's a lot of interesting kind of ways that the author, I think, tries to tell us things uh, through the subtext. So the, there's two times a Hebrew phrase is used uh, that means went down. And the NIV, it's translated differently in both. But uh, the one time is that he went down to Joppa. That's where he decided, he heard from God, and he went down, he made a decision that he was going to, instead of going towards Nineveh, towards the Assyrian border, he was going to go the other way, towards the Mediterranean Sea, and get on a boat. So he went down to Joppa, and the second time is when he went down into the boat, where he seems to have kind of released all hope of uh, surviving, it seems. And I believe this is no accident that they use this particular Hebrew phrase because it's also used elsewhere in the Bible as a euphemism for death. Very clearly. And it's, I believe the author is doing this on purpose to show us the significance of these two moments, these two critical moments in Jonah's story. When Jonah acted on his decision to run from God, the author purposefully places these phrases in the text, to make a point. And I believe that point is this. God is life. God is life. And so to run the other way is to run toward death. And he was making conscious decisions to step away from God. He knew what God wanted him to do. He knew what God's purpose for his life was, and he was consciously deciding, nope, I'm going to go that way instead. And that was to run towards death. I think that's what the author is trying to tell us by using these particular phrases for those two instances. I do want to quickly point out again that this is a prophet. This isn't just some guy. This is a prophet of God who on many accounts was the spokesman for God. And God chose him for a reason. And next week we'll see how difficult and uh, impossible it can be to try to run from God because God will seek after us. God won't give up on us and his will will be done. If he wants us somewhere, we usually end up there one way or the other. Now if we get back to Jonah's story, in verses four through six, God sent a great wind 
I don't believe this was out of uh, anger, but out of kindness. To show that he's still in control. And to get, hopefully, to wake Jonah up to what was really going on. Well, the sailors are afraid, of course. Terrified. And so they're all screaming out to their own gods. They're throwing the cargo off the ship, trying to lighten it, doing everything they can. They go down below deck. The captain goes down. And where's Jonah? Taking a nap. In a deep sleep. Weird. I've been on ships before, and I can't imagine sleeping at all, but definitely not during a storm. But I get a little sick, so... So the sailors are terrified, the waves are crashing, the winds are howling, Jonah's taking a nap. Jonah simply doesn't care if he lives or dies. And I think he so didn't want to see the people of Nineveh repent, to see God's compassion uh, come to them, that he would rather die. And thought to himself, hey, if I'm dead, then at least God will have to either find someone else or maybe there'll be nobody and that would be even better. At least they won't get that compassion they don't deserve. So we can really see the character of Jonah, mainly that he's just one stubborn guy. He so did not want to go to Nineveh and obey God's command for him that he would choose death over obedience. And in the passage here, we see, again, some of the irony of the story of Jonah. The captain comes, comes to him, goes down to the, in the, to the lower cabin and tries to wake him up. He calls him out. He's like, how are you sleeping right now? Do you not hear what's going on up here? We're fighting for our lives and you're taking a nap? Pray! Pray to your God! How ironic! This sea captain, this pagan, has to coach a prophet of God to pray. It's just getting ridiculous. And it's in Jonah's stubbornness that he's just shut down. He doesn't care anymore. And I would guess that he feels he can't pray to God about the storm because he knows what's going on. This is God trying to redirect him. This is God trying to awaken him. This is God's discipline. He knows what's going on. Sometimes when we have these moments in our lives where God is leading us somewhere, calling us to do something, and for whatever reason, we choose not to do it. Whatever reason that might be, we begin to feel separated from God. We begin to feel separated from him. That doesn't mean that God went anywhere. God was in that storm He was right there. Nothing can separate us from him. But what it does is that it tends to make us feel that we can't come to him when we face the storms in our lives. When storms arise because we believe it's our fault. And so we choose to close ourselves off. To go into a deep sleep. To not seek God out when in reality we can always come to him. And the truth is that I believe that if Jonah right then and there had prayed to God and said, God, I'm sorry, I believe just one, in one instant the storm would have stopped if Jonah had prayed. I believe that fully. I believe that was God's intention, to try to shake him. 
but he so didn't want to go that he would rather die. He could have calmed the storm, but Jonah knew that if he prayed and said, God, I'm sorry, well, what would that mean? That would mean that he would be surrendering to God, and if he surrendered to God, the next step would be to obey God. And he'd have to turn that ship around and go back to where God was calling him to be. In verse 7 through 8, the sailors, they cast lots. They still haven't kind of put together that it's Jonah yet, so they cast lots. That means basically like rolling dice to see who it is that uh, is responsible. And uh, we know from Psalms that uh, God is the one who controls the outcome of those, for those who cast lots. And so, of course, it fell on Jonah. And now they know it's Jonah's fault. So they're like inquiring, hey, what's, what's going on? Where do you come from? You know, what did you do? What's going on? Like, wh- why does God hate you so much? And verse 9 through 10, he answered. And we read this earlier. I am a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. This terrified them, and they asked, what have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord, because he had already told them so. So what have you done? Like, uh, are you nuts? You worship the God who created the sea and you get on a boat? Are you crazy? You've put us all in danger. And now we have again this kind of image of irony. Jonah, the prophet, says to them, I fear the Lord. Or here it says, I worship. But most translations say, I fear the Lord. And that word fear means reverence. I have reverence for the Lord. I see him as God, as Lord of everything. And yet, right now, he's running from that God and that God's call on his life. And at the same time, the sailors who didn't formally have any concept or any idea of this God now have a fear of the Lord. That terrified word, that the word they use is terrified, but that it's the same word, that fear. They then had a fear of the Lord. They now get that that is the true God. He is the sovereign one with authority over all. Now it's as ridiculous as Jonah's actions here seem to us. We have to be careful. I know when I look back at my own life, I can say that I've been, unfortunately, in similar spots of foolishness in my relationship with God. I can think the most prominent example in my life was when I felt God called me to Germany, not originally from here. And, uh, but when he first put it on my heart, I was like, eh, I'm good. I, I don't know. It sounds like a lot of work. I was afraid. I didn't think I would have enough money. I didn't think I would be able to support myself. I had a lot of good things going on in my life. So I thought, well, you know, maybe, maybe someday... But I kind of really rejected what I felt like God had put on my heart and what I felt God had called me to do. I didn't know, I didn't know if I was ready to give everything up that I wanted to do, what I, wanted, what I saw for my life. Now, I didn't jump on a boat or anything and try to get away, but I did try to run from the presence of God foolishly, which then in turn separated me from Him for a season. Not really, of course, I know now that God was always there, especially through the storms. But in my situation, that simply meant redirecting my attentions. 
I focused more on myself, on my career. I told myself that, well, when I have enough money, when I've kind of reached this point in my life, then I'll listen to God and and obey. That's a type of running from God. And I can tell you, it didn't go well for me either. I had some storms in my life, and I had the feeling of being swallowed by a fish. And in the end, I ended up here anyway, so it was all for nothing. And that's the point. That's what running from God is. It gets us nowhere. So I'm going to read the last few verses, 11 through 16 again. The sea was getting rougher and rougher. So they asked him, What should we do to you to make the sea calm down for us? Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried out to the Lord. They cried out to the Lord. Please, Lord, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man. For you, Lord, have done as you pleased. Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. At this the men grew at this the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. This part always really fascinated me. Even when Jonah is running from God and has no care about his actions, he's, he knows that he could pray and ask God to forgive him and that storm will stop, but he'd rather die. And he tells them to kill him, putting their, his life on their hands, forcing them to murder. He doesn't care. But even in the midst of this, God still managed to use him as a prophet anyway, even when he didn't want to. (laughs) Because these men may have never heard about the true God any other way. And yet here through Jonah, through his stubbornness, ironically, they turn to God. They call on him. They repent. They make sacrifices. They make vows to him. How amazing. Their lives are changed forever. Jonah gets swallowed by a fish. God can even use a bad situation caused by us, caused by Jonah himself, and still in the end, God is glorified. Still in the end, we see the sailors turn toward God in repentance. The point is that God is in control. God knows what he's doing, and God is in control, so why would we try to run? Why would we try to fight when in reality, the best thing to do is to surrender? to surrender to him, whatever he calls us to do, whatever he leads us in, wherever he takes us, to surrender completely to him. It'll go way better in the end. You'll have a lot less struggle and you'll still end up in the same place either way, most likely. So in conclusion, we can look at this story, we can look at Jonah and think, what a weird, weird man trying to run from God. What's going on in this guy's head? What is he thinking? But before we start thinking that this whole thing is just ridiculous and that 
You guys, of course, would do better if you are in that situation. I think we can pause for a moment and kind of reevaluate what all this stuff really means for us today. What else can running from God look like besides getting on a ship or a plane? Today, I think we all at times still run and try to hide from God. It just might look a little bit different. Now to see what running looks like, we have to first kind of maybe broaden our understanding of what calling looks like. What are we running from? It can be something so small, it can be something simple and direct, like we see with uh, Jonah, it was so direct, so clear. It can also be huge life changes. God might call you by just putting someone on your heart to pray for. You know when you like have that person that keeps popping in your head and you're like, oh, why am I keep thinking about that person? Maybe you should pray for them. Maybe God's putting them on your heart to pray for them. You think, well, I don't really like them very much. I don't think they deserve prayer. So instead, you turn on the TV and, or scroll through Facebook and Instagram for hours. That's running from God. That's avoiding what God is telling you to do because you don't want to. He may lead you to go to someone and tell them about Christ, tell them about Jesus, maybe somebody you really don't like, that person at work that annoys you. We all have them. Maybe he's calling you to take a friend or a family member out to dinner because they really need it. And you're thinking, I don't know, I, just, I have enough money for me to eat. Don't avoid opportunities to serve God to answer calls, whether it's something big or small. Be ready. With the bigger things in our lives, God sometimes tells us to move to another country. God can call us to specific types of ministry or uh, directions in our lives. God could lead us to move to a new job. You think, well, I'm really comfortable in my job. I paid really well. God wants me to move to a job where I'm going to have to start all over again. If God puts it on your heart and you get to that point where you know it's God leading you in it, don't try to talk yourself out of it for superficial reasons. Jonah was called to spread the compassion of God to a pagan nation in a foreign city. But because he thought he knew better than God, because he thought these people didn't deserve God's compassion but deserved God's punishment, he chose to run and to hide and to not obey. And there are lots of things that God is going to lead us in in our lives. Sometimes daily things, sometimes weekly, monthly, sometimes big, giant, life-changing things. I just remembered I've been here almost eight years, and it was like, whoa, I kind of planned to be here for like six months, and how'd that happen? So that's how God works sometimes. But for everything that God tells you to do, or calls you to do, or puts on your heart, remember you're going to have a thousand other reasons why you shouldn't do it, why it's not a good idea, why it shouldn't be now, why you don't have the money, why you're not good enough to do it, why, why, why. There's so many reasons we can come up with why not to obey God. We can think of reasons because of fear, because of inconvenience for ourselves, because of the relationships that it will affect in our lives, because of insecurities in ourselves and 
how we see ourselves and how small we feel we are compared to what God might be calling us to do. These are some ways that we might run from God. Again, it could be something as simple as turning on the TV when God's putting on your heart to pray or to read your Bible. It can be that simple. With the bigger things, I feel we often use good excuses, right? That I'll do it later, when I have the money, when I'm ready, when I'm not so busy. This is just not a good year for me, God. Often we run because we feel inadequate, not good enough. I can't pray for that person because I know what they're struggling with, and I struggle with that too, so who am I to pray for them? I can't, I can't even have the faith that God's going to provide for my needs. How can I have the faith to pray for someone else? Well, if God's calling you to do it, He'll provide. Just do it. All of these are a running from God and they redirect. We're redirecting ourselves away from God by simply saying no to what God is telling us to do. And I normally, I feel like it's pretty safe to say normally God doesn't start by calling you to go to, I mean, that would be like calling you to Berlin so that all of Berlin would repent. I would be like, whoa, I'm not sure if I'm ready for that. Maybe when he tells you to pray for somebody sitting next to you or he tells you to pray for that person at work or to talk with that person at work or to spend time with that person, maybe that isn't your favorite person in the world, but you feel like God's calling you to love on them, to show them compassion. Say yes to those things first. When we say no, we're redirecting ourselves either mentally spiritually or physically away from God whether it's big or small things and this often happens when we fail to see or to fully understand why God is telling us to do it why God why me they don't even like me why would you tell me to talk to them why and I can tell you you will not always get an answer to that question when I finally did decide to come to Germany as I obviously did I had no idea why. I had no idea what was awaiting for me. It was a little scary. But looking back, now, I can see so clearly what God had intended. That's usually how it works. You've got to take the step first, and then it will become more clear. The main point here is to trust in Him. Trust in His strength to carry it out. In His timing to get it done. And that he knows what he's doing when he told you to do it, when he put it on your heart, when he called you, when he gave you that purpose, whether it's something tiny or something huge, he knew what he was doing. If he calls you, I can promise you, he already gave you the ability to do it. You already have the faith to pray for that person. You already have the words to say before you walk up to him, even if you don't know it yet. That's where the faith comes in. And in closing, let's also be encouraged by this story today. (laughs) Because God chose this stubborn punk. That's good news for us. God used him anyway. God used him in the end. God even used his stubbornness to reach those lost sailors. He can use any of us. There's nobody that has a good enough excuse why God can't use you. If he calls you, if he puts something on your heart, It's for a reason. 
I'll invite the band to come back up as we close. It's not the end of the story. When we're doing these kind of small books, I always like to encourage you guys, if you're coming next week, read through the book of Jonah. It's very, very short. It would only take you probably 10 minutes. Read through it so that as we're going through this text, you can kind of have a scope for the whole book. And it's just a really interesting read, I think. And uh, next week we'll continue in chapter 2. Spoiler alert, has something to do with a big fish. So I hope to see you guys there. Finding Nemo. Yeah, basically. Now, at the end of the month, every month, we take some time for communion. So we're going to kind of shift now into a time of communion together. And uh, I want to just kind of let you guys know a few things about communion that we believe really strongly here. We don't believe that communion is some sort of like magic thing that makes you better in the sight of God. It doesn't make you more forgiven than you already are right now because we're forgiven 100% right now and forever by the blood of Jesus Christ. And we take time every month for communion to remember that to remember the blood that was spilled, to remember the body that was broken for us and for our sins. But something else that we also do here is we take a little bit of time. We'll take two minutes, three minutes, and uh, we'll just the band's going to kind of play quietly right now. And as they do, you can just take a minute. If you have any sin in your heart, anything you're struggling with, anything you want to just bring to God and lay at the cross and repent to Him, This would be a time to do that before we take communion together. This, again, is not that uh, you have to do this in order to take communion. It's so that it's an acknowledgement. It's a declaration to God that we need Him. It's a declaration to Him that says, I'm a sinner, but I know that I'm forgiven because of your grace. Here's the things I'm struggling with right now this week. Here's the things I'm struggling with right now. I want to give them to you. So I'll give you guys a few minutes to do that, and then afterwards... I'll invite you guys and we'll just all kind of crowd up here together at the front and take communion together. So to to close, I just want to pray a blessing over us, our week. This is from 1 Thessalonians 5. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. This is our prayer, Father, that we would be molded and changed by you in everything, in every day, in every decision we make. And let us never find ourselves directing ourselves away from you, but always toward you and towards the thing you are calling us to do in our lives every day. For your name and for your glory, we pray. Amen. 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 Well, it's, again, great to be back. It was really great to see you guys all this evening. You're all welcome to hang out after the service, have some snacks, have some conversation, and we'll see you next week for part two of Jonah.